From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. All Coloradans 16 and older will soon be eligible for the COVID-19 vaccines. But some doctors are less concerned about a mad rush to sign up and more concerned that not enough folks will come forward. There are still a lot of people who are reluctant to get vaccinated, or there's people who may think that their chance to get vaccinated is so far off that they have delayed signing up. An update on the vaccine rollout, coronavirus cases in Colorado, and if the state's mask mandate will really end this weekend. Then, perspective on what's been a difficult and deadly winter for Colorado's high country. Plus, the state poet laureate Bobby Lefebvre hopes that his poetry about gun violence and mass shootings will challenge people to think differently and act differently. Hi, I'm Allison Sherry from CPR News. Every day, I aggressively seek out the most important criminal justice news in the state and deliver it to you with context. I'm thankful that you value responsible fact-based journalism that gives you insight on how Colorado's justice system works. You'll rely on CPR to keep you informed about what's happening in all parts of the state. Today, I'm asking you to make this reporting possible. Please donate at CPR.org. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. The mandate to wear masks in Colorado is set to expire on Saturday. It comes as the state opens up vaccines to people 16 and older beginning tomorrow. And let's get perspective on where things stand in the pandemic with CPR health reporter John Daly, who's been tracking the response to COVID-19 for more than a year now. Hi, John. Good morning, Avery. Let's start with the mask mandate. Governor Jared Polis indicated that he might extend it by another two weeks. What do you know right now? You know, it's still not clear exactly what the governor will do. Polis indicated earlier this week that the state would turn over control of most of the COVID-19 response, and that would include restrictions to local authorities. The state is focused on large-scale events like the Rockies game. We've got the home opener today at Coors Field. 21,000 fans will be allowed into the stadium, which seats about 50,000 people. And even with no mask mandate, Governor Polis is urging people to continue to practice social distancing and avoid large gatherings for another month or two. What's the thinking behind giving decisions about handling mask wearing to local control? You know, this would allow counties to make decisions based on local case numbers rather than a statewide approach that has been criticized, especially in rural Colorado, as a one-size-fits-all type of uh, approach. Also, the state is turning to a new color-coded dial system, which is being called Dial 3.0, which is another way where the state will more and more turn this response over to locals. You know, All along, the governor has said it's been his North Star to protect folks who are most vulnerable to the virus, that's the elderly population, and to prevent hospitals from being overrun. And those two things have have mostly happened. You know, most older adults also now have had their vaccine shots. They were prioritized. And hospitalizations, you know, they were close to 2004 months ago, really high and dangerous number, but that's dropped now down to a bit above 350 where it's kind of plateaued. So what are you hearing about the pros and cons of this decision? 
You know, a number of counties, especially in rural Colorado, where they often see fewer cases and hospitalizations, they say they're ready to move on, that vaccinations are ramping up and the pandemic has taken a toll and they're ready for counties and individuals to take more responsibility. Here's Jeff Kaur, the public health director of Mesa County, and he says as long as there's enough vaccine... Then we're looking at a timeline of between April 16th and May 1st to drop all restrictions, which is really in line with what I'm hearing from what the state will do as well. You know, but others like groups representing local public health officials, doctors and frontline workers say it's too soon. They worry about doing this prematurely, that that could lead to an increase in cases and hospitalizations. And also we've got these variants out there, right, these mutant strains of the virus that have caused another surge in Europe, and they've devastated the healthcare system in Brazil. Here's Kim Cordova, who leads a local union. She's worried that if you get rid of the mask mandate, that's going to hit frontline workers, like in places like groceries and healthcare, the hardest. And nationally, numbers are definitely back up. What I understand is we're looking at a fourth surge right now of the pandemic. It's just too soon to lift the mask mandate. I think it's reckless and irresponsible right now. You know, despite that viewpoint, many states are dropping mask mandates, and that's even as President Biden and top national health leaders like Dr. Anthony Fauci are urging them not to. It seems like Governor Polis is banking on the vaccines, being able to tame the variants and, uh, you know, hopefully bring this pandemic to a close. How many cases of COVID-19 are there in Colorado right now? And how does it compare to the peak numbers over the past year? You know, the number of new cases per day has hovered around 1,000 for weeks. And the number of people hospitalized with coronavirus, as I was saying before, has leveled out around 300, a bit above that. Uh, the governor's called that a very stubborn number. So we have, you know, relatively high uh, case numbers that, that might compare to uh, some of the times uh, last year, but not to the level of the, the worst of the peak at the end of last year. Is the state still contact tracing to track the spread of COVID-19 and its variants? That's happening. And, you know, much of that work is happening at the local level. What do we know about the variants in the state right now? Their numbers are still growing. The state health department has documented more than a thousand cases of what they're calling variants of concern with another 26 under investigation. And that's in just three months since we recorded the first one. You might remember that at the end of December. The big question is, is Colorado testing enough to know how widespread these variants are? Some public health experts say surveillance could definitely be better. You know, the bottom line is these are more contagious, they're here, and their numbers are definitely growing. And as we said, beginning tomorrow, anyone 16 years and older will be eligible to get a vaccine in Colorado. Tell me more about the thoughts behind that decision. Is that simply because more doses of the vaccine are available? Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is just a, a huge, huge moment in the the story of this pandemic in Colorado and nationally. The state is currently receiving more than 400,000 doses of vaccine a week. That's a huge increase from a few weeks ago. But Governor Polis said that Colorado expects to see an increase of tens of thousands of more doses per week in April. The state is planning to open vaccine eligibility in mid-April. So this is just a you know few weeks earlier than expected. At least 12 other states have already expanded eligibility to the general population. So it, things are really rolling on the vaccine front. 
It's important to note that just because someone is eligible to get the vaccine, that doesn't mean that they'll be able to get it right away, right? That is correct. Governor Polis said he expects everyone 16 and older in Colorado will be able to receive at least the first dose of a vaccine by mid to late May. So that's still another month and a half away. And on that timetable, it means most adults and older teenagers in Colorado could be fully vaccinated by the end of June. So it's coming, but it's going to take a little time. Getting a vaccine is still a huge frustration for people, though, especially those who have higher risk factors if they get sick. Are they still going to get priority? And how do they make sure that they're not overlooked? You know, one CPR listener uh, described this as trying to trying to get a shot as like the Hunger Games, right? <sighs> and we've heard that from folks. We've reached out to some of the health systems to ask if folks who sign up now but are in earlier priority groups will get access to the vaccine before the general public. Dr. Amy Ducro is an infectious disease specialist at Kaiser Permanente Colorado. Here's what she told us. The way our system is set up, is that if you meet criteria for a tier or a phase that is higher prioritized than even the ones that we're working through now, your place in line is honored by the fact that you meet a higher criteria. And then if you are within the same phase, then it's based on the time and date that you sign up. We also reached out to UC Health and we were told the same thing, but we don't know how all the systems are going to do it. Many of the health systems are working their way quickly through wait lists, so they expect to be able to accommodate the general public pretty quickly. Though, again, eligibility doesn't equal a shot in the arm right away. They say to be patient. Do healthcare ex- systems expect a mad rush tomorrow of people signing up for COVID-19 vaccines? You know, Dr. Ducro from Kaiser told us that they do expect many to sign up for their wait list, but a mad rush is not actually her biggest concern. Her main worry is that uh, that supply is not that the supply is coming in and they've hired plenty of people to work at these clinics, but that they won't have enough folks to come forward. There are still a lot of people who are reluctant or hesitant to get vaccinated, or there's people who may think that they're chance to get vaccinated is so far off that they have delayed signing up for any wait lists. John, let's get a little more context about these vaccines. How many people in Colorado have received at least one shot of either the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine? You know, our numbers are now heading into the millions. It's really a large number. Colorado entered phase 1B4 of its vaccine distribution plan on March 19th uh, and uh, opening up inoculations to an estimated 2.5 million people, including those 50 and older and a wide array of essential workers. And as of Monday, about 70 percent of Coloradans aged 60 and older had received at least one dose of vaccine, including about 79 percent of those 70 and older. More than 1.58 million Coloradans of any age have received at least a first dose of coronavirus vaccine. And more than 950,000 Coloradans were considered fully immunized. So almost a million people there. How does Colorado compare to other states, especially as people get more eager to travel and reconnect with relatives that they haven't seen for more than a year? You know, I was just looking at the New York Times website uh, last night about this. Colorado's vaccinated 29.9 percent of its population with one dose and uh, 17.5 percent with both 
doses of fully vaccinated. Those are both a little bit ahead of the national average, but very close. Many states are right in that range. So obviously most Americans are still not vaccinated. Most Coloradans are still not vaccinated. But President Biden and top federal officials say we'll be a lot farther along by Memorial Day. Remind us what the vaccination rate needs to be to achieve herd immunity, that idea that enough people will be immune to the virus, that it won't be circulating in the community significantly. You know, I've been told there really is no magic number. We hear of a decent range as being between 70 percent and 90 percent of the population. It's kind of a moving target. Uh, It depends a lot on some other things like how many variants there are out there and how fast they're spreading and how long natural immunity lasts. Here's what I heard from Dr. Tista Ghosh. She's the senior medical officer with Grand Rounds uh, that advises. It's a, a company that advises businesses about the pandemic. She thinks of the virus as a car going down a highway. There's a point where you put up so many roadblocks that it has nowhere to go. So every vaccinated person or an immune person is a roadblock to the virus. And we need to set up enough roadblocks that that virus has nowhere to go. And we should keep in mind that a vaccination doesn't guarantee a person won't still get COVID-19, right? Is that why the Centers for Disease Control continues to encourage social distancing and wearing masks? That's right. I mean, these vaccines have come along very fast, and there's still a lot that we don't know exactly about. There's more research coming in. We know that COVID-19 vaccines are effective at preventing COVID-19 disease, especially severe illness and death. We're still learning how vaccines will affect the spread of COVID-19, although it's looking good, some of the research that's coming in on that front. After you've been fully vaccinated against COVID-19, you should keep taking these precautions like wearing a mask, avoiding crowds and poorly ventilated spaces until we know more. John, thank you for updating us on the fight against COVID-19. You bet. Happy to do it. CPR health reporter John Daly is on our COVID-19 team tracking the pandemic as it enters its second year. A question for you. If the statewide and local mask mandates are lifted in your area this weekend, will you still wear a mask? Email us at coloradomatters at cpr.org and tell us about how you'll make the choice to stop wearing or keep wearing your mask when it's not necessarily required. You can also call us and leave us a message at 303-871-9191, extension 480. We may use your message on the on a future show. Again, that number is CPR's main number, 303-871-9191, then extension 480. It's been a winter of sorrow for Colorado's backcountry skiing community. Over the weekend, a helicopter crash in Alaska killed well-known Aspen skier and guide Greg Harms, as well as four other people on a heli-skiing trip. And so far this season, 12 people have died in Colorado avalanches, most of them backcountry skiers. That ties the record for the most avalanche deaths in a winter in modern state history. Colorado Sun reporter Jason Blevins has been following these tragedies in depth and is himself a backcountry country skier. He joins us now from his home in Eagle. Hi, Jason. Hi, Avery. You have called this winter endlessly heartbreaking. Can you give us a sense of how much worse this season has been for avalanches in Colorado and maybe what's causing it? Uh, Yeah, we've had, uh, you know, sort of a record number of fatalities this year. 12 people died and uh, avalanches that tied the record set in 92, 93. So it's been a while. And, um, yeah, it just hit especially hard. You know, in my community, we've lost uh, a lot. Uh, five five of the, you know, nine skiers who've died came from Eagle County, and that has been uh, 
especially hard for this smaller community. And uh, it, it, the folks who are dying are experienced. Um, they're older. They're fathers. They're, you know, really well-established in their communities, well-respected backcountry travelers. So it's been, it's just been especially painful, let's call it. Yeah. Definitely heartbreaking. And you've known a lot of this winter's avalanche victims. Last week, a friend of yours was killed in an avalanche outside of Beaver Creek. In February, you were invited on a ski trip that killed three skiers outside of Silverton. This might be a hard question, but how are you doing? Um, Yeah, it's definitely hard. Um, You know, it's sad, but, uh, you know, this is sort of, I don't know, this happens sometimes. There's, you know, when you ski in the backcountry, it's, it's, you can have a really safe time, but when you do make a mistake, sometimes the consequences could be, you know, just so overwhelming and so large. Um, you know, it's like I was saying earlier to Stina, like, you know, we make a million mistakes a day, don't we? You know, I do, you know, and we usually end up with what a, a scraped fender or a stub toe or, you know, a cut finger, but it's not something that takes our lives. But, um, that's sort of the consequences of, um, you know, recreating an avalanche terrain, a, a really small miscalculation could sometimes be uh, carry a very large consequence. Yeah. And like you've said, a lot of these skiers are from the same places. Those three skiers who died outside of Silverton, Andy Jessen, Seth Bosing, and Adam Palmer, they were all from Eagle. How is the community responding to these losses? You know, it's hard. Uh, you know, we have meal trains going for uh, the families we have, uh, you know, we've really rallied. Um, it's pretty cool to see what this community's done. Um, you know, I'm talking to search and rescue teams out in Silverton, and you know, they are just overwhelmed with the outpouring of love from from Eagle that has really uh, come to their doorstep and helped those guys. Because you know, that's some people that kind of get lost in this are. Uh, are the search and rescue teams, you know, these are volunteers, guys that are, guys and gals that are out there, you know, doing really hard work and really dangerous scenarios. And they're, you know, they're volunteers. They're not paid, you know, firefighters are paid law enforcement. So it's, it, that's tough work for them. And, you know, it's, it's cool to hear uh, from those search and rescue members in Silverton, you know, how much they appreciate Eagle. Um, we've really, rallied around them, helped help them with some uh, funding for equipment and, you know, really try to offer as much support as we can, as well as each other here. We're going to have a parade hopefully next week for, uh, for Adam and Seth and Andy. Um, so, you know, we're dealing like we can. Yeah. And I think about what you said, where we're all making little mistakes every day, a million little mistakes, but the consequences are so high in the backcountry. Given these deaths this winter, some people might question why you even go into the backcountry at all. To someone who doesn't understand the allure of the backcountry, how would you describe it? What keeps you coming back, even though there is a high risk? Oh, it's beautiful out there. <laughs> you know, it's the reason we live in Colorado, everybody wants to be in the backcountry. You know, it's no different, really, than a hike in the summer. It's just that there's an added level of risk. And that's something that kind of gets lost in the in the messages here, you know, we have a big focus on the tragedies and the fatalities, but at the same time, you know, it is entirely possible to go into the backcountry and have a wonderful time. You just have to keep your slope angle low. An avalanche problem is a terrain choice problem. So if you stay away from steep terrain, you're going to avoid avalanches. And it's a lot of fun out there. 
um, skiing fresh powder, you know, getting some exercise, being in the you know, great outdoors and, you know, hanging with your friends. That's, uh, that's really one of the greatest aspects of skiing you can have. Can you describe a great moment backcountry skiing this winter? Maybe the trip that you took New Year's Eve? <laughs> yeah, we were, uh, went up with Palmer and uh, some buddies and we, I don't know, we went up to Craig's Peak above Sylvan Lake and it was, it was a, a great time. It was very early season, very early season conditions. And we, we saw that just super lousy, rotten, weak layer on the ground. Just total facets, right? Like everything is sugar all the way to the ground. 36 inches of just sugar and brought my dog gravy and gravy did not like the descent he was fine on the skin track but when it came time to skiing down in those crystals he could not really get any purchase and he was just sinking he was like building a hot tub in the snow just running in circles <laughs> trying to figure out how he could get out of the snow so i had to put him on my shoulder and ski down with him and it was not he was not a happy house oh what a snow pup um, you yeah. said that backcountry skiing, it doesn't necessarily have to be dangerous. Can you describe ways people can stay safe backcountry skiing or boarding? Um, yeah, there's a number of uh, sort of digital tools that we use right now. There's, um, you know, CalTopo is a map. It's free. Um, there's another one called the Odalite. And you can take all these digital maps. You can measure your slope angle from the top, from the bottom, from the slide, from the side. Make sure you're staying out of anything over 29 degrees, use that Cal Expo topo map to really map out your route and plan ahead. Um, that's something that is, is, you know, an interesting angle in avalanche education. I recently took my level one, retook my level one course. And you know, back in the nineties, when you took that course, it was all about snow crystals, digging pits and studying snow. And now it's all about it's almost a psychological course, you know, it's like trying to, Make sure that you are making the right decision and planning ahead and really thinking about decision-making and how you are moving through the backcountry. And, you know, are you with a group of dudes who are going to charge hard? Then maybe you should tap the brakes a little bit. Um, you know, so there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of the, you know, kind of insider decision-making. Get inside your head. Get inside the group set and really think about, um, you know, what you're doing and, and how you can avoid um risks and mitigate the, the hazards of avalanche strength. Yeah. And in just the 30 seconds we have left, when people look back on this winter and its deadly avalanches, what do you hope they take away from it? Well, I'm going to probably cry, but most people, you know, just realize that there, you know, there is danger out there and you really need to just be heads up, check the forecast, you know, for sure, dial in to see AIC every day you go into the background. See what aspects are posing the largest danger. Avoid those aspects. Work together with your crew. Think about your your plan and reassess at every step. If someone in your party is not having a good time, not feeling safe, listen to them. Um, you know, there's a number of ways that we can really enjoy ourselves and be safe in the backcountry, and it's just a process. Jason, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so sorry for your losses. Thanks, Avery. Appreciate it. Jason Blevins is a reporter for the Colorado Sun and has been reporting on this deadly avalanche season. He joined us from his home in Eagle. After the break, Colorado's poet laureate and the message he hopes will resonate about gun violence through poetry. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
It's been nearly two years since we released an episode of our podcast since Columbine. We didn't expect to add another episode to the series, but our conversation last week with former Columbine principal Frank DeAngelis was so important, it just had to be shared. And it does, it re-traumatizes you. But I refuse to be helpless or hopeless. I refuse to give up. I'm Nathaniel Miner. Real advice about seeking help and not trying to power through alone. A special episode of Since Columbine and the entire series, anywhere you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. When Senator Julie Gonzalez of Denver spoke to the state Senate last Tuesday, the day after the shooting at a King Supers in Boulder, she said she was filled with rage and grief and heartbreak. Sometimes there are no words. And so when I find myself unable to speak, I turn to poetry. I offer these words from our Colorado Poet Laureate, Bobby Lefebvre, a Northsider, a constituent, and a friend. And I offer my solace and solidarity with the families of the 10 victims of the Boulder shooting who lost their lives yesterday. One, the hand tells the gun, I am boss. The gun answers the hand, aim wisely. The gun tells the bullet, prepare yourself. The bullet answers the gun, I'm afraid. The bullet tells the target, I'm sorry. The target answers the bullet, I know. The target tells the blood, don't leave me. The blood answers the target, I must. The blood asks society, how much more of me do you want? Society answers the blood. Two, in the distance, prayers ring out. God bless the hand. God bless the gun. God bless the bullet. God bless the target. God bless the blood. God bless the United States of America. Senator Julie Gonzalez of Denver reading a poem by Bobby Lefebvre, Colorado's Poet Laureate. Bobby, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. When did you write this poem? You know, I was thinking about that, and and I, I don't even remember, to be honest with you. It was, it was um, after one of these mass shootings that um, I, I penned the piece, and I think that is also sad that I can't pinpoint exactly which point that I wrote the poem. That Colorado has had such a high rate of these shootings that there was there were there were many previous that the poem could have been written for, and it is still poignant today. Why did you write it the way that you did, personifying the gun, the bullet, and the blood? It's a it's a complicated conversation, you know, and, and so I, I really wanted to to humanize. Uh, the process that, you know, is enacted when these things happen. And I think it's easy to jump to the rage. It's easy to jump to uh, a very visceral um, poem. Uh, But I wanted to sort of attack this in a way that was a little more rooted in observation and and stillness and, and sort of the watching the process play out from 
uh, a different viewpoint. And the end of the poem is chilling. Society blesses everything from the hand that held the gun to the United States of America. Why did you juxtapose personified objects that are speaking to each other with those chants that seem mindless? You know, the first thing that we do in a lot of ways collectively, and and it may just be, you know, the collective consciousness trying to reconcile uh, the dissonance, but we always send thoughts and prayers, right? And I think that we have gotten to a point where policy needs to be enacted. We need to think more uh, robustly around how and what the solutions may be uh, and how we employ those things. And so it was meant to be this sort of somber way out of unless things change, we're going to continue to repeat this litany of prayers that may or may not be effective. The Denver Metro, it has one of the highest rates of mass shootings per capita in the country. There was also another mass shooting just last night, this one in California. What do you think poetry can do in the face of gun violence that seems to repeat itself? Poetry is is really a place where we come to uh, unite together around things. It's it's able to hold those things that are are too heavy for us to put anywhere else. And so I, I think that poetry is a translation of of the psyche that we are operating inside of, and it allows people to process in a way that maybe regular language just doesn't allow for. And so I know that. In times of of strife, people often turn to poetry, as as Julie said, uh, because it's a way to language those things that we just don't have language for. And what do you think is missing from conversations about gun violence that poetry might be able to put words to or bring to the front? Yeah, I, I think that the 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 heart is is missing in a lot of ways. I think that the we see the results, and of course, we 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 create. Um, uh, sort of a, a way to connect with the tragedy. Uh, but I think that not being able to put into words how we're feeling is 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 foundational to that conflict that we we exist in in those times. And so I think that what the poem does, what poetry does, is it offers us an entry point to those difficult conversations, which is disarming in a lot of ways. Although a lot of the poems that I write are are are, are slick with social, um, dialogue, it's also a place where people can engage in a way that allows them to think about things differently or to contextualize uh, those emotions and thoughts that don't fit anywhere else in their lives. And so uh, for me, the poem can be a doorway to new conversations and action, right? Because art has the ability uh, at its core to shift narratives. And if we're able to shift the narrative, we know that soon after that, Uh, so do people's hearts and minds and behaviors. And I really do believe that poetry is uh, an opportunity for us to enact social change and policy change by by shifting that narrative. I like that. Let's talk about your work more broadly. You've been writing a lot of poems about the pandemic, loss, grief, love, hope. How have you weathered the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, like everyone, it's, uh, we've all lost something, you know, we've all had to reckon with um, new ways of doing things. As an artist, I've actually been doing very well. Um, 
last year would have been a very difficult year for me if the pandemic wasn't a thing, just because of personal things that were going on in my life. But it really allowed me the time to sit with myself and um, really just be uh, with my own thoughts, feelings, and emotions and, and trying to contextualize this thing that we were experiencing collectively as well. Um, mm-hmm. And at the same time, as a cultural worker, as someone who is in community and who does, you know, social justice work, it was a year of a lot of things. I think last year was a portal to uh, whatever it is that we long for but have yet to see, right? And so uh, there was a lot of good energy, a lot of maddening energy, and all of those things are, um, they're things that the artist lives uh, for in a lot of ways, right? To, to be able to, to hone in on that beauty and that chaos and to, to make yeah. something out of it. Um, and, and that's what I did all, all year last year. It was, a, it was a, the most beautiful, difficult time I've ever been through. And you actually wrote a poem that you called a book in that you recently read. It's the last poem that you'll write about the pandemic. You read it at the Virtual Biennial of the Americas Festival earlier this month. Will you read us an right. excerpt? Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll read the last quarter of that piece. Um, Let us return to the circle, this holy hoop of hope that is unending. Let us lick each other's wounds, offer one another the medicine of mutual aid. Let our mourning morph into ritual. Let our grief be a tender mercy. Let these tears be libation. Let us become the altar, something living, something unfixed, something capable of transforming. Let us be both the memory and the imagination, the stewards of bridging yesterday to tomorrow. Let us remember so that we never forget and hear at this moment, this memorial embodied, we will learn to harness and act activate our anger, channel and transform our anxiety here. We will exist unafraid to sit in our sadness, to allow for it to fester until it transmutes into healing. Let our bruises become a balm. Let our gaping wounds become mouths that translate the pain. It is okay to not be okay. Let us bathe in our brokenness, evolve in our emptiness, faith keeping us forward facing. And in this place we see but have yet to arrive upon, let us create new meaning, social reconstruction in our hands here at this human memorial, at this monument in the flesh where we are the flowers, where we are the prayers. Let us say and remember all their names. Let us shout our own into the void so loudly that the unborn waiting somewhere in the cosmos will smile celestially and proud. And we will walk together across time and space with understanding and empathy, arms linked together, experience endured, healing and heard, and life will bend into tomorrow with promise. I promise. Bobby Lefebvre of Denver is the State Poet Laureate. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Indigenous storytellers choose what stories to tell about their communities and how to tell them in a new project from Rocky Mountain Public Media and KSUT, based in Ignacio, Colorado. Native Lens shares these many documentaries that Indigenous folks are recording on smartphones. Let's listen to one from a tribal community in New Mexico. Hi, my name is Andrita Gonzalez. I'm from San Alfonso Pueblo. I am 11 years old. 
want to tell you a story about what coronavirus has changed for us and about Native people. Salafanto is like a family to us, everyone, including everyone. The Salafanto Pueblo is like we're all like a big family together. Today was Sanokar Feast Day and we couldn't even dance. That's the one thing about feasts. We have we have like a lot of dances. I wanted to dance personally, but we couldn't because COVID-19. We had to do feasts at our own homes. Like, our family's big. So what we did was, at my house, we made a lot of food for people, our families, our loved ones in San Alfonso. So we made a sign saying that um, San San Juan fleeces today. You can drive up and pick your food, pick your food up, and that's what we did. Everyone, wear a mask, please. We want this coronavirus to end right now. We really want it to end right now. So please, everyone, wear your mask. Be safe. Stay home, and everyone, be safe. That's Andrita Gonzalez of San Ildefonso Pueblo in New Mexico. She shared her story as a part of Native Lens. Now let's bring in a couple of the project's creators. Tammy Graham is the project manager and creative lead. She's also executive director of the public radio station KSUT in Ignacio, Colorado. Hi, Tammy. Thanks. It's great to be here. Sheila Nanato is a creative and cultural consultant for Native Lens. She's also the station manager of KSUT Tribal Radio. She's a member of the Southern Ute Tribe. Hi, Sheila. Thank you for having us. So this project, it's called Native Lens. And who gets to control the camera and choose what to share is the heart of the project. Can you talk about that vision? Well, the vision is definitely to have Native and Indigenous peoples tell their story the way that they want it told. It's not an interpretation of somebody else's version of how we live and what we do. We have always been subject to how people view Native Americans and how they interpret our life settings and our communities, when in reality, our normal may not be what other people consider a normal type activity. And when we talk about Amplifying Native voices in media and making sure Indigenous storytellers have control of their own stories, that hasn't often been the case, right? True. It's all about angles. And so the angle that we've seen Native communities portrayed has not always been in the most positive light. We get media coverage when it's something that's negative in our communities, um, more often than not. And so this project is sharing the positive in each of our communities. And there may be some stories that come out of it that are pushing for a cause that may be a need in Indian country that hasn't been recognized or recorded by mainstream media. When media coverage focuses exclusively on problems in Native communities and on tribal lands, how can that end up actually doing further harm? It can. When you have a film crew or or you have a media outlet come in and all they're going to highlight is the things that that we're missing, not the thing, not how um, the problem is being addressed and solved, um, then it does. It it causes folks to um, see Indian country 
in a pitiful way, and we're not pitiful people. We're very proud people who have amazing things going on in each community. And the resilience that Native communities have, even through something such as a pandemic, it's not something new to Indian country. Uh, it's just the fact that I think that because everybody's tied closer together because of social media and because of news outlets and the fact that it took, um, well, my biggest thing about it was the fact that it took a pandemic for people to realize that there is a nation within a nation that doesn't have water, doesn't have electricity, barely has 13 grocery stores on um, their reservation. And speaking of Navajo Nation, you know, they don't have the medical facilities that they were predicting they were going to need to take care of individuals who were high risk for this pandemic. It took all a pandemic to bring that to light when these are things that should have been addressed years ago. And the fact that, um, yes, they they come out and, and there's people who are reporting on it, but it's because of the amount of people who were affected and the, the amount of people who were victims to COVID. And so... These are, like you, like you said, inequities in Indian country that have been occurring for not five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years. These are things that have been going on for a long time. And because of this, I like to see the positive in most things. Because of that coverage, though, there's projects that are happening in Indian country that have been happening, but they're getting highlighted. And people are seeing it that, again, a nation within a nation is receiving assistance but this is stuff that should have been addressed before a pandemic. And let's listen to another Native Lens story. This one comes from Tierra Collins and Claylin Collins of Navajo Nation. They share what it's like to work at sheep camp during the pandemic. My dad told me a story about my great-grandmother who got sick with pneumonia. When she got sick, her children put her in a resting home for the time of. But when she got better and returned home weeks later, her children had sold her sheep. With no more chores at her ranch, she went back to the resting home and passed on days later after being there. Her heart broke so much that her sheep were sold that it's what took her life. We could probably never learn this way of life anywhere else. And to learn from our grandparents who learned from their elders is a true blessing. Could this have happened if we weren't forced into a global shutdown? I really don't know. I had a job, and this pandemic did cut it short, but I was able to come back out to my grandparents' land where it been the past couple of months just doing the basic necessities to survive, which are really connecting me back to my roots. So in all reality, it's kind of helped me personally find out what I really enjoy doing in life, and that's just the basics, like the ancestors trying to survive and live, take it day by day. And Sheila, I want to go back to you on that. A lot of national coverage has focused on disproportionately high rates of COVID-19 in Navajo Nation. And it's certainly important to highlight inequities in healthcare. But I think like what you were saying before, part of the goal of Native Lens is to ensure that that narrative is nuanced, right? Yes, we want to make sure that, you know, 
people understand. And actually, when this project started, we had talked about like, okay, how are Native communities handling a pandemic? How do you maintain normalcy in in your life? And a lot of it is that they, a lot of folks went back to traditional ways. Like the gentleman that's in that film, he talks about, I had a job and COVID affected that. And so I came back to help on my grandma's farm. So, and that's what you should do. You know, you should take responsibility for the things that need to be attended to. And if your grandparents or whomever can't, they're, they're in a situation where they're a high risk for COVID, then by all means, you know, you step in and help. Because one of the questions we ask, like, okay, because mental health in Indian communities is something that really, you know, this could be something that could affect anyone's mental health. But in communities where we really needed to, like, okay, how are people maintaining their mental health? Are they doing other projects? Is it beadwork? Is it writing stories? Is it poetry? Is it painting? Is it returning to traditional crafts? Is it, you know, being out in in nature in your community and trying to figure out, like, or, or learning even about things that you've never done before and taking time to learn your language, all these different things. That was the curious part of it. And so having the opportunity for people to just share a glimpse. And like I said, it, it's, it's all about angles. So this is the native angle. And again, the project was Native Lens. And it's the view from the native eye to the native community and what we see in our daily lives. I know of people who have pulled out projects that they've had sitting for like 10 years and they've pulled out all these projects and they started working on them. And it was just to help have something to do, keep yourself busy and your hands moving. And that's what they did. They're finishing all their old beadwork projects from 10 years ago that have been sitting in the closet. But I mean, that's a discussion that they could bring up or a topic that could be highlighted. I want to make sure that we're clear as we're talking about Indian country. Colorado and Denver in particular also has a very large urban Indian population. Do folks need to live in a native community or on tribal land to share a video? Absolutely not. I'd love for us to start getting some submissions from Native American folks that live in in urban areas. It's full spectrum wherever they might live. Tammy, this project is starting during the pandemic, but the idea is hopefully to keep it going longer. Is that right? Yeah, our, our vision is that this will be an ongoing project and will just kind of take on a life of its own. And as it continues, the word continues to spread about it throughout Indian country. I think shining a light and the ability for non-Native Americans to get a glimpse into what Native life is like right now. With all the racial and social justice issues that are really up right now in our country, I think I think people are hungry for and open to learning and hearing more about cultures different from theirs. And despite all the division that we're seeing, I think underneath that or on top of that or something is is a hunger and a true interest. Tammy, tell me more about the team that you're working with. I feel so honored to work with this. It happens to be a group of women. There's five, maybe six of us. Two staffers from Rocky Mountain PBS, Carol Flesher and Debbie Higgs, who both live in Durango and are involved in the Regional Innovation Center for Rocky Mountain PBS. And then uh, Tanea Winder and Shereen Gonzalez are both just fabulous. I think Shereen's background and experience as a videographer, as a young videographer and documentarian who's attended, um, I think, two fellowships with the Sundance Indigenous Film Institute 
is a graduate of Fort Lewis College. Tanea, we, Sheila and I have worked closely with as part of the Dream Warriors project that KSUT Travel Radio has initiated. I feel like we've really had to look at look in the mirror at ourselves collectively, individually, and say, what are we committed to? What is this project about? What is it not about? And we've also talked some about audience, especially that as these stories go out over KSUT and through Rocky Mountain PBS and online that people outside of Native communities will see and hear these stories. But one of the things that I really enjoyed in the video asking for submissions was that it's important for Native kids to see themselves represented on TV and online and in media. Um, and I wonder if you wanted to share anything more about that, Sheila. Oh, yes, it's so important. You know, you, you sit back as a young Native woman in southwestern Colorado, and when I was growing up, there wasn't there wasn't people that I could turn to on TV and be like, oh, yeah, they, they get my humor, or they're telling it the way it is, or we never really got to see people who, unless it was, you know, I always laugh, you know, unless you were the bad guy on a, on a a movie somewhere, but it, it is, it's really, truly important that our, our children get to see, to have somebody that they say, you know what, I really look up to that person because they are doing something, they're stepping out of the box, they are moving forward in something that they like to do, whatever, I always say, whatever kids do, whatever they want to do, um, why should we always have to have the first this and the first that? <laughs> Why can't we just be behind somebody who are, had already paved the way? Um, but it is. It's very important that our kids have somebody to look up to. And more than just sports figures, too. We have a lot of Native Americans who are involved in sports. But that shouldn't be, you know, our kids should be able to have role models that, you know, are mathematicians or artist in their own right, hopefully this is this puts us ahead a couple more steps than, than where we're already at. Tammy and Sheila, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having us and thank you for focusing on Southwest Colorado. KSUT's Sheila Nanato and Tammy Graham speaking with me last fall. Tomorrow, Tammy will lead a discussion about how to get involved with Native Lens to elevate Indigenous stories. We'll put a link to register at CPR.org in the Colorado Matters podcast. Thanks for joining us today, and special thanks to Stina Sieg. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.